You're listening to episode 136 of the Writing Life podcast from the National Centre for Writing, a weekly podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Simon Jones. And I'm Steph McKenna. And it's the 3rd of March 2021 here in Norwich as we're recording. So on the show today, we have writer Horatio Clare here talking to Peggy about his new book, Heavy Light, which is subtitled A Journey Through Madness, Mania and Healing. And more on that in a second. But first, we have a couple of news items, Steph. Little little drum roll for our news broadcast. So back in October, we had the lovely Emma Shirtcliffe on the pod talking about Laxfield Associates, a new agency she'd just set up down in Suffolk. And to kick off the agency, Emma was running a couple of prizes, including the new Anglia Manuscript Prize, which was sponsored by none other than the National Centre for Writing. And the winner of that prize has just been announced, I believe, Steph. Yes. So the winner of the New Anglia Manuscript Prize for this year is Lucy Dixon for Choked. And Lucy, who's from Lower Stockton, Suffolk, is a graduate of UEA's Creative Writing Crime Fiction MA. And her novel Choked is set on the Norfolk and Suffolk coast. Yeah. And that particular prize was to celebrate the best new writing from Suffolk and Norfolk in the form of a debut novel from an unpublished writer. So many congratulations to Lucy. And another big congratulations to friend of NCW, Heather Parry, who won the Laxfield Literary Launch Prize, which was open to debut authors regardless of location. Excellent. And if you want to hear that podcast with Emma, you can check it back in the archives from October 2020. And for anyone who catches the podcast as it goes out this week, we have a fantastic upcoming workshop. Uh, Editor Insights with Ella Michela is taking place a week Saturday on the 13th of March in the morning. And this is an online workshop which will take place on Zoom. And it's going to be a fantastic friendly session where Ella will be talking about her experiences as an editor and a translator and she's a co-founder of an independent publishing house as well and she'll be shedding light on the editing process and she'll give you some really useful practical tools for how to refine your work in preparation for pursuing publication. So we've only got just a really small handful of places left on this session and as well as a sort of practical presentation that Ella will be supplying, there'll also be an extended Q&A session afterwards. So you can ask Ella all of your questions and help apply her wisdom to your own work. Yeah, and if you'd like to book for that, you can find all the details over on our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. So on the podcast today, we have Horatio Clare talking to Peggy Hughes. Horatio is a writer and broadcaster. You've probably come across his work, even if you didn't necessarily realise it. He's worked for the BBC, the Daily Mail, Spectator, Daily Telegraph, basically every newspaper publication you can think of. He's also written several books, including travel writing books and also works for children. And he's on the podcast today to talk about his latest book, which is out this month. This is a highly personal account of what he describes as a journey through madness, mania and healing. And this isn't really the kind of book that you paraphrase, so I want to leave it to Horatio to describe in his own words. But before we get into the interview, if you're listening and would like advice or assistance yourselves, then we do highly recommend that you get some professional advice. So for some mental health support and advice, um, please do check out minds.org.uk. There's also rethink, R-E-think, Org and checkpointorg.com slash global, which is a really helpful website that links to lots of mental health organisations across the world. We'll put links to all of those down in the show notes. So let's hand over to Horatio and Peggy. So Horatio, yeah, thank you so much for um, chatting to us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. 
yeah, really nice to to meet you across the across the Zencaster uh, about your latest book. Have you done much promo yet? Uh, yes, there have yeah. been one or two interviews. Yes, um, three so far. <laughs> yes, it's slightly strange. Um, you know, it's a writer's dream come true. You want to talk to the Evening Standard and the Sunday Times and the New Statesman. Of course you do. Um, and to you. But uh, it's a it's a delicate subject, so it's, it's a bit odd. Um, it, it is a bit strange, you know. But when you write, you, you write very intimately for the reader. Um, that's the thing, isn't it? So yes. I feel a kind of trust and relationship through the pages with my reader. Um, and it's a different thing talking about such personal matters, I suppose, uh, in a more public space. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I'm, I know I'm lucky to be able to do it. So. Yeah, I was going to, we've sort of flown ahead to, to what I was going to ask you in a little bit, but I, I, I can only imagine. Well, let's, let's sort of start at the beginning then with um, Heavy Light, A Journey Through Madness, Mania and Healing. Can you kick us off for issue just by telling us a little bit about how this, well, I say journey, I think I mean journey with the book, but I guess I mean the journey of the story of the book as well, how it began. Uh, yes, so the book begins um, towards the end of 2018. And um, I'm rising into uh, a manic breakdown. And the book tells the story of what that felt like, um, what that what happened. Um, so we move from, we start in Manchester in the airport. I'm going on a family skiing holiday and I'm a nightmare. I'm a ghastly, mad, wild nightmare, trying to hide it and hold it together and living with the big, fairly um, strong delusions, which I'm hoarding to myself, a kind of secret system in which uh, a great game, a sort of world-saving scheme, which is a f- sort of screen I'm throwing up between myself and reality, um, a reality which, for various reasons, I can no longer bear. And you follow the story um, of us going there and coming back, and then me breaking down completely um, in Yorkshire and being eventually sectioned um, and detained in a mental hospital um, where I was for about two weeks, Um, and then release and return to the world. And the second half of the book is uh, an analytical story, really, of how healing happens and how it might go wrong or might have gone in other ways so the strong second part of it is about making a choice between medication um and what seems to me at the time a life of medication uh or turning as i did away from psychiatry which seemed to offer very few options towards psychotherapy and psychology um which have had um gently wonderful effects um and so the book is um, unusual in that we don't hear many stories from the inside of a mental hospital um and i hope that it's a sane book about madness um written with the intention of helping a conversation about mental health but also um and overwhelmingly to say thank you to the people who were involved and to highlight and underline um, how our system works and how wonderful it is in many ways 
and how difficult and perhaps dangerous it is in others. Hmm. I mean, I wonder when in this, um, in what happened to you, when did it become apparent that you would write about it? Um, When my sanity came back, which was very quickly, uh, really, at least um, in essence, in the mental hospital. Uh, So after, on the first night, I was given a very strong antipsychotic. uh, And then again, three days later, uh, and more or less from the first night, second night, third day, my sense of self um, returned or was rather unfettered by mad delusions. Um, and suddenly you're really quite suddenly facing the realities of the situation. Um, and I reached for my pen pretty well immediately. I went to the art room in the hospital, got thick paper, which was all they had for drawing and a pen, and started writing a diary. Um, and I think not long after I came out, um, I made the first. I did a broadcast for from our home, from our sorry. I did a broadcast for from our home correspondent on Radio Four about the experience, um, which was very much the message was to section somebody can be to save a life. I wanted very strongly to attack that taboo and to talk about something that isn't talked about. So you can answer your question really quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and you've sort of alluded to this already, but, but you know, the sense of, um, I suppose, retracking this ground, you know, I think in the book you talk about hunting the ghost of your, or Zafar Cuneal talks about hunting the ghost of yourself. Um, how, how was it for you to, to revisit that, that period, which, you know, you had, well, you can say more about this, maybe just the piecing together of that picture, especially the first half of the book. The first half is it was very painful uh, to revisit um, because it's a story um, of the damage that you do um, and of uh, being very ill and causing tremendous pain and worry. Um, So that was pretty ghastly. Um, But I felt that there was something and there was indeed something healing about putting it down and arranging it uh, and seeing how it had worked and unpicking it and telling it a stage at a time. Uh, The second half of the book, the tracking the ghost of yourself, um, was a pleasure to do. It was fascinating. Uh, It was really uplifting to be able to talk to the social worker who sectioned me, uh, the nurses who looked after me, um, the chief executives uh, who run the foundation trusts, um, the chief executive of Calderdale Council, who is responsible for the built environment and for trying to make a society fit for people to live in in terms of uh, mental well-being, um, all the way up to an MP, um, was absolutely intriguing um, and eye-opening. And I really enjoyed it, um, as well as the investigation into how we treat mental health um, and how... Uh, particularly in acute crisis, um, different roles and different treatment models get different results. Um, All of that was um, really um, wonderful to do, actually. I mean, it wasn't as fun as some of the journeys that I've done, um, but it was rich um, and I felt it uh, important. Mm-hmm. I th- yeah, I think the the sort of clearly tone and place and people are all a sort of through line in all of your work. It was nice to meet so many sort of a cast of so many people who had been part of this particular journey with you. 
Really nice. I like your your short short descriptions of some of those people. I think it's your friend Chris. You say he's all glint and dash and a booming voice. Yes, such fun to write people you love and Mm. and, and people you admire. Uh, And I I'm a a great admirer of people. Um, So yeah, that that, that was was a real pleasure. And thank you for saying so, Peggy. I'm I'm glad you enjoyed those bits. So I wonder, would you would you be able to talk to us just about some of those findings that you find in speaking to these people about um, you know different approaches to to handling well-being um, and mental wellness could you say maybe just some some of the some of the more some of the things that I suppose people would find that they wouldn't know maybe um, yes so um, I guess if, if you start with crisis then um, although perhaps it's the wrong place to start but if you start with crisis then um, medication really works uh, and it, it really helped me um, the problems I think come later where supposing that what is wrong with you is not a chemical imbalance in your brain um that it used to be thought um, from the 1950s onwards that that was what caused all kinds of suffering um from depression to anxiety um even they thought at the time homosexuality um turns out to be complete nonsense there is no chemical imbalance in your brain all that has been debunked um but it leaves a very strong legacy of intervening powerfully and bluntly uh, in the brain with medication and the fact is that we don't know how a lot of this stuff works the brain is too complicated so lithium for example which is a very popular long-term treatment uh, nobody knows how or why that works um so you realize that we're negotiating a system which in some ways is still in its infancy um but when you're sitting there having recently had a breakdown facing a psychiatrist uh, who's been practicing for 30 years and dispensing pills throughout that time. It's very difficult um, to hang on to what seems to be your narrative, which is, I'm me, I'm an individual, I broke down for very specific reasons. Um, and, uh, you know, haven't you got time to, to hear those? And the answer is no, it's not the system's fault, the system doesn't have that time. Uh, and so I became um, sceptical, I suppose, of that what we would call a one-size-fits-all treatment. Um, the one thing I do absolutely know about uh, mental well-being is that it isn't one-size-fits-all. There are as many solutions as there are individuals. Um, and what happened was I turned away from psychiatry and went to psychotherapy, um, which I was able to do because I could afford it, £60 an hour. Um, and in fact, I'd blown my money in my mania. Uh, and so my father helped with those fees. So I was doubly privileged. Um, but it made a huge difference because the one thing that we all need terribly um, and I, I count the well, as it were, as much uh, as those who have been unwell, is access to somebody who will listen. Um, and therapy is, in the words of a friend of mine, the kindest thing you can do to the people around you, especially for some of us. And so I guess that was what I learned, was that the field of mental health treatment is massively diverse and rich, but what you're likely to be offered because of the situation that we're in uh, is very narrow and small. And so the pandemic has had the effect of massive, massive prescription of antidepressants um, and a concomitant reduction in uh, uh, referent referrals to psychological health therapies, um, which we know work. The NHS is frank that about 50% of people who are treated for moderate depression with psych- psychotherapy make a full recovery. Um, 
that may not be the same thing. You know, that you don't get the same results by just dispensing antidepressants. Of course, for many people, medication does work. Um, but um, I suppose my bottom line is insist on your individuality. Ask questions. I demanded a second opinion and was rebuffed. Uh, and at that point, that's why I lost faith in the system. I thought if they can't even give me a second opinion, then I really need to look for other answers um, because I'm not happy with what I've heard. Um, so that is one thing I learned. And the other is that people really want to help. Psychiatrists really want to help. Everybody wants to help. It's just that the tools that they have and the pressures on them may prevent them from helping uh, as richly and as subtly as they like to and need to. Yeah, I think one of those tools, I think, if you like, is um, the narratives, and you touched on narratives, but the narratives and the stories around mental unwellness and mental mental health, which is another thing that you, you talk about, you know, the, the sort of just the t terminology around how we talk about these things. Um, I, I think, sp obviously, being the National Centre for Writing, we're specifically interested, you know, in the, in the stories we tell and the, lang the language we use and how it's framed. I wonder what you would like to see happen to better articulate um, this landscape then how, how could it be better done this is an absolutely brilliant question and i think it goes to the center of the whole thing um i think even the phrase mental health uh, is a turn off i think it's a sort of shrouded gray phrase which makes people immediately wary um and although we're all more happy to talk about it now um it's still difficult i prefer well-being um i think that we need and deserve to own the our language for our own conditions. So in my case, I had a breakdown. I understand why it happened. Um, there's no mystery about it. And I understand what it required to heal. It took me a long time uh, to realize that I didn't have to live with this nightmare formula, that there was no cure. There is no cure for being me <laughs> or you, but there is a process of healing. Um, if you've had um, a hard time in any degree, from anxiety to depression to insomnia, I think they're all forms um, of madness one way or another. And I think that the kind of clinicalization of the language um, has trapped people into feeling that they are this and therefore they must take this. Um, actually, you're you. And if you think about how English used to refer to us um, all, you could be batty, loony, uh, root loop, eccentric, nutty, um, bananas. Mm. Um, and there was a kind of humor and recognition in those terms that um, we are all a bit wacky. I mean, that is what an individual uh, mind and soul traveling through the universe is. Um, and so I think some a, a loosening of language, a, a lack of fear of, of clinical terms, um, uh, a willingness and a sense of freedom in self-definition is extremely important. Um, and you can see that people who do make recoveries um, without medication, there's often quite a, song, a strong sense of, I suppose, self-story. Um, and it's one of the things that you do, and it's one of the things that I teach uh, in nonfiction, is telling your story as a means of understanding it, uh, as, as a means of being an author in your own life. Was that the case for you in writing this? 
I th- there's a bit I think you talk about seeing your seeing your who want to see who I am in myself undosed unaltered was that was this book a clarity um, clearing way of doing that yes I suppose so yes I mean I couldn't have done it um, if I my experience of um, medication I was given was that it numbed me and made me a strange combination of uh, muffled and hyper um, and what I wrote when I was taking it I didn't like uh, I didn't feel it was my voice um, and so yes it absolutely was um, the thing I still struggle with is my therapist said you know can you imagine yourself a, a valid person without being a writer um, and I still struggle with that because I've clearly enmeshed those two identities so tightly um, that the idea of putting them apart still scares me but um, one has to see oneself as something else and for me uh, writing has been a way I suppose of establishing a, a, a sense of agency in the world. I, I was also really struck by the this, 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 this story, the version given to your little boy about the good wolf and the bad wolf which is another very uh, the good wolf is uh, you feed the good wolf things go well you feed the bad wolf you get into trouble it's also yes. a very nice way of sort of that that self story um um to to speak then sort of a bit more generally about your work as a as a writer and as, as a travel writer um how has this year been for you Horatio when we've all been so severely grounded <laughs> well, um, it was strange, you know. I mean, this time last year, I was um, zipping into Manchester and teaching and coming back uh, and doing all that commuting. And then the world shut down. Um, and if you remember, the sun came out. Um, and we live in a very small, cramped house, um, but surrounded by beauty, woods, moors and streams. Uh, and so we walked over it a lot all the time. And I had rich and wonderful time with my son, um, which was fantastic. And then in terms of writing, uh, actually the kind, a lot of the kind of writing I do, which is celebratory, I suppose, um, was quite in demand. Newspapers and magazines wanted to know about, and their readers wanted to know about um, getting out into nature. Um, and so I did a lot of that and, and really enjoyed it and felt useful. I mean, it always feels useful up to a point, but it felt like it, there was a contribution to be made. Um, and then I was lucky enough to be sent to Sicily uh, by a magazine in a, around September where there was a small window. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was uh, wonderful. Um, and then we moved briefly because um, both my partner and son are online school. Um, we went to um, the Marseille area for a part of the autumn, which was rich as well. So I've been very lucky. Uh, <laughs> coming back um, in the darkness as Brexit closed the gates of the continent uh, was horrific. <laughs> and then returning to the northern winter, um, which requires so much strength and level-headedness um, and endurance and humour of the people who, who know it, um, um, I mean, I struggle with it, I do, but uh, we have struggled through um, and uh, we're, we're in a hopeful place. I don't know quite what's going to happen to my <laughs> beloved industry. Um, oh, I'm just looking out the window and a heron, beautiful oh, heron. Just oh, like lovely. Uh, we've got that flat light uh, today, which seems to brighten colour in a strange way. Um, uh, but, well, that's a good omen anyway. I'm hoping that, you know, the, I, the world is all still there and that when we get to see it again, even in 
a little bit, like just a trip to Wales, that will be like going to the Himalayas. Oh, um, so <laughs> I'm hopeful that there will be more, more to write and, and, and anyway, more to experience. Yeah, I, I love I, I love that. I just love that heron flying by. That's made my afternoon. I didn't even see it. <laughs> Great. I'm sure birds sense your gaze on them. I think it's uh, as soon as I looked up and my eyes widened, he slightly veered. It was marvellous. I think they deserve a ritual. I, I, you know, magpies and, and lots of other birds have a ritual. I don't know why herons don't, or maybe they do. Maybe you know that they do. <laughs> I identify them with my father. Um, he, he died. Um, and one of the things there was a... He was. He left. He had a little heron badge. I think I'd given him. I used to like manically hand out those RSPB badges, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and he he kept the heron one. And so I think of him. Um, but I was um, recording a while ago on a lake with Julian May, a wonderful poet and radio producer. And he said Dylan Thomas says uh, the heron priested sure, but I don't think of them like priests. I think they're a bit sort of um, out of touch, like judges. <laughs> <laughs> there is there is an aloofness to a to a heron. That's true. Yeah, lovely. I listened just recently to an essay uh, of yours on Radio Three uh, from Hay, which was exploring the kind of castaway. I've been thinking about this in terms of lockdown and and a, a, a not being able to travel and that idea of the kind of the desert island of the thinking mind, you know, and being being sort of marooned in in our own islands just now. But I wonder what what have you turned to you've mentioned nature but what books what other writers what have what has got you through this time in that sense oh um all sorts of strange and amazing things um the, above all um when it came down really hard and the world was so frightening primo levy's book the truce um which is his sequel to if this is a man which is his journey back from auschwitz across a broken europe um down into italy absolutely amazing um one astonishing man and what a, an incredible apocalyptic time i mean they, they came out of the fires of hell uh, and the way they came out um with a sort of generosity um and excitement and kindness was absolutely flooring um i loved it so that i i read that quite a bit um and then uh, lots of things. I had to read for the Costa Prize, um, which I judged. So there were wonderful books um, on that list. Ghost Town by Jeff Young, uh, his Liverpool shadow play, I think is a masterpiece uh, of writing about place and time. Um, so that became a bit of a talisman. Um, and then I started, I, mean, I, I, read, I was reading a lot about um, Marseille uh, and there's Jean-Claude Itzo, who's a wonderful uh, Marseille crime writer. Um, so I spent quite a lot of time doing that. Um, I read Robert Harris's new one about V2. I have very, very wide tastes. Um, I, I pretty well enjoy everything uh, when it's good. I have to say there were an awful lot of books on the cost of this, which were hopeless, um, I mean, that was submitted, and which made gave me tremendous um, enthusiasm for my students because I thought, actually, you know, it's not that. It's not. The, the, the standard out there is is there for the taking. It, we can definitely write better than some of this stuff. <laughs> um, and so uh, I'm now back into term teaching um, at Manchester. And uh, I've, that's what I've been doing partly today, uh, is reading their stuff and how original and striking it is. So 
all sorts of things. Mm. You've been in the you've been in the future today. That's that's a nice <laughs> nice place to be. Um, <laughs> lo- looping back then, though, um, and we you know right at the very beginning we talked about sort of crisis and mental health and so on. I just wonder what you you know from the from the point that you're in now, having written the book, and what you would wish to have known at the the sort of height of that mania. What would you want to tell yourself or to tell others? I guess who may be finding themselves in a similar place. Everyone wants to help. Uh, and you need to accept it, um, and also to accept that uh, post kind of crisis treatment, a lot of it is self work. There were some very wise things said to me, uh, one by Kapka Kasabova, who is an extraordinary writer, uh, and her book To the Lake was something else I read this year, which knocked me out. Um, and she says, self work is hard, um, but you need to do it. Uh, and uh, She'd taken up meditative practice. Um, I haven't got there yet, but um, I guess it's that really. I, the thing is, uh, I'm 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 no kind of authority. Um, all I can do is bear witness to what I did and um, what happened and how, at least in my experience, treatment works. Um, so I guess I'm saying, look hard. At your own journey um, and where it's not serving you demand changes so uh, if you're on medication of course if that's working fantastic uh, if you want to come off obviously you should do it with professional help but you may need to demand that help really quite strongly um, and I guess it's that I was raised with the idea that you should always question authority and I think that holds true. Um, that holds true. It's not that authority is ill-intentioned. It's that authority, in many cases, is under pressure, which makes it possibly incompetent. I know Kapka actually, big fan, big fan. Mm. She's she's a seer, I think. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, just finally, then, Horatio, as we come to the end here, I just want to ask you just two final questions. I think one is where and when do you write? Where and when did you write this book? I wrote it mostly on my doorstep um, because I love to sit outside. Um, and I wrote it uh, throughout last year. Um, and I got into a rhythm of doing a, somewhere between a thousand and two thousand words a day and then cutting them down at night. Um, so that's when and, and where I did. Mm, lovely. Thank you. Um, and I know that sort of taking your work as a, you know, your, the books you've written and, and as a sort of whole, if we could, there's a, a keen interest obviously in the edges of things, but also uh, in hope, in stories of hope, got it sort of seeing and then bringing that back. How, how far is this a hopeful tale and how important to you is that? I think it's a very hopeful tale um, because I think you, you remember, you know, there, there was a time when surgery was carried out um, with a rag in your mouth, a, 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 a slosh of rum and a saw. Um, and we've come a long way since then. And I think, I hope and pray um, that mental health treatment will go through something of a similar evolution and that the chemical sores uh, will be removed and that treatments like open dialogue and psychotherapy uh, which are already uh, understood to be more effective, will, God willing, become more widely available um, because that is what we need and deserve. Um, 
and I have great faith uh, that that kind of need and that kind of deserving won't be won't won't be stopped or prevented, and and, and that it'll happen. Um, it is just a question of how soon, and, and we desperately need it soon. Mm, brilliant. Is there any final th- thought you'd like to leave us with? Uh, there's a quick anecdote from the end of Down to the Sea in Ships, where I'd been round the world on this container ship. And the captain said, you know, you will get back and they will ask you what it was like. And they will imagine sun sets and sunrises, he said, but they will never understand, however much you tell them, how vast the oceans are. And that's been my great um, comfort and consolation and inspiration is that the world is very, very wide and that there is always more in it than we may be led to think. Um, And that is my main grounds for hope, is that the narrative can seem so small and so crushing, and yet it is not the truth. A place to end. How fabulous. Thank you, Horatio. That's been a real treat to speak to you and to glimpse a heron in Hebden. (laughs) Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for listening and big thanks to Horatio for coming on the podcast. As we mentioned before, if you're affected by anything that you heard in this podcast, then we do recommend you seek advice. We've put links down in the show notes. Do bear in mind that what Horatio was talking about was specific to his circumstances. And we do recommend that if you're affected by any of the issues mentioned in the podcast, that you do seek professional advice. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook and you can find information about all of our programmes and upcoming workshops and events at National Centre for writing.org.uk please do rate review and subscribe to the podcast using whatever podcast app you prefer to use it does help other people to find it which helps us and hopefully helps other people with their writing thanks again do keep on writing and we will catch you on the next episode Mm -hmm.